When we think of Jesus, and not the joke that I just told, but the real Jesus, what do we think of? How many of you grew up with the image of Jesus, or you've seen the painting of Jesus, where he has the beautiful European face, he's kind of very pale, he has long flowing hair, and he's carrying a lamb that looks like it was just washed, and it doesn't smell at all. And we have this, this idea sometimes, even when we read the gospel, of Jesus as this nice guy, that primarily he's nice, and he, he's very soft, and he's very approachable, and he's very kind, and he's, he's just loving, you know, he's this shepherd that cares for everyone, and he also looks like somebody who belongs in the front of a romance novel. That isn't the real Jesus when we read the gospel. When we read the gospel, it says that he was not much to behold, which is kind of a nice way of saying he looked pretty average. He wasn't extraordinarily tall. He didn't have you know, the, the perfect physique. He didn't have the perfect face. He came as a normal man of that time. He didn't have European features. He didn't look the way we think that he looks. Because a lot of the times what happens within culture when we create images of Jesus, when we create paintings and pictures of what we think Jesus is, is we turn Jesus into something that looks a lot like what we want him to look like or what we're comfortable with. So, usually, white people create a white-looking Jesus. And when I uh, moved out of my little tiny farming area community into Fort Wayne, I started going into stores, different types of stores, and I would be in there, and I saw all different types of representations of Jesus. I saw my very first black Jesus in a painting. And I thought, this is kind of neat, or this is different at first. And then I went back, well, why is it that we create him in our own image? I think it's important to see Jesus as somebody that's approachable, somebody that is somewhat like you. But the truth is, the gospel speaks to who he is. He's a Jewish man being raised in a situation where they are being oppressed by Rome, and they're soldiers that are running the nation and he isn't in charge. His people aren't in charge. He doesn't come down as a military figure. He doesn't come down as somebody born into wealth. He doesn't come down as somebody who looks extraordinarily beautiful. He comes kind of average and into a poor situation. This Middle Eastern man, probably of dark skin, dark hair, and Throughout time, cultures have turned him into images that look like them. And I think sometimes that's at the detriment of the local church because we create a Jesus that isn't the Jesus that really was there. Does that make sense? And when we go through the Gospels, we almost have to move away from that idea of of how we see Jesus in our mind and allow the book itself, the Bible, to speak to us. And Jesus 
wasn't always the easiest to get along with. And what I mean by that is he created some enemies, right? Eventually, he was crucified, so he had some pretty strong hatred in his direction, didn't he? He did some things that really uh, torqued some people off, got them very upset. And we're going to read about one of those today. If you want to open up your Bible or if you have your, your journal Bible with you, we're looking at Mark 2. And it starts a lot like the other stories start in that we see a healing that Jesus does. But it quickly turns into another situation. You see these situations grow and develop over time. So we're going to be talking about the people that Jesus got upset. Jesus wasn't always the passive person we think of him as. He came as like a peaceful warrior when you really think about it. He came as an agent of change. He came as somebody who was a rebel. Jesus was a rebel. He went against the system as it was not always right. He went against some of the, the rules and regulations that were not of God. And he tried to redefine, or I wouldn't say redefine, he tried to pull back the people to the original intention of the law and of God's word. So Mark 2, 1, it says this, and then when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So he's in his own home area. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So it seems that he's, he's in a home. I don't know exactly if this is his home or somebody else's home, but he's in a home in his hometown. And everybody hears about him being in the region where he's from. And they start to show up because remember, Jesus just healed uh, people with leprosy and he healed people that had demons in them. He cast the demons out and he did all sorts of these things. And so they're coming to see what's going to happen. And it, it, it's to the point where there's no more room. And I, I imagine this is the scene in this house. It's hot. It smells. There are so many people packed in there that it's probably 10 to 15 degrees warmer than it is outside. And everybody in there is waiting for Jesus to do something remarkable. They're there to see something. And you have people there that probably need healing. You have people there that are listening to the words that Jesus is teaching. And you have people there that are there to investigate what Jesus is doing. They've heard about this man. And they want to see for themselves what's happening. They want to make sure that he's doing the right things the right way. Have you ever, ever had somebody show up and watch you do your work? You ever have an, a boss or a manager who's like over your shoulder watching you? Maybe that's what they're supposed to do. How many of you get nervous when that happens? You start making a little, you know, more mistakes and you're like, you start questioning everything that you're doing. This is what's happening in this scripture. Now, Jesus doesn't get nervous. Instead, he uses this as an excellent teaching opportunity. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic. He was paralyzed, carried by four men. And when they could not get him, get near him, 
because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, what? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So the question is, do you think, do you think that's what the friends were thinking? You know what we need? We need this guy to get his sins forgiven. Let's dig a hole in this roof and drop him in. Do you think that's what they were trying to do? I don't think so. He's paralyzed. They had to lower him on a stretcher. They had to push him down through the roof. I, I have a picture of, of what one of the homes would have looked like in that time, a bigger house of that time. Aiden, can you pop that up for me? There we go. Can you kind of see it? This is, this is from my uh, NLT Bible, and it shows a, a larger home. I mean, homes could be as small as uh, 300, 200 square feet. This is a much bigger one. So if you're wealthy, this is what it would look like. You have uh, different rooms for different areas. You have courtyards uh, for different access to the other areas. You have a kitchen over here. So you wouldn't want your kitchen in the middle of the house because it could heat up the whole house. You would want it off to the side. And then they would also have often spaces for livestock. And remember that uh, Jerusalem, surrounding areas, Galilee, is, it's, not, it's not flat land that we're talking about. Often in Scripture, you'll see that they went up or they went down to a location. And a lot of times it's talking about actually going up in elevation or going down in elevation. So they were able to build into hills, and you, you'll see a lot of towns sometimes are built into hills. So you have multiple le levels where you almost have like walkout basements, that type of thing. So th that's very possible that the house that Jesus was in was something like this. And then you would have uh, a roof with, with wooden beams, and you would have tree branches covered with clay, mud, kind of like this stucco type of thing. And it would be pretty dense. That would keep the heat off of the people. It would keep the house a little bit cooler. And even in scripture, you see that people had upper rooms. So they would either have open upper rooms where in the evening or if it was warm in the house, if the house had heated up, they'd go up there, have their meals. Sometimes those were covered. Sometimes they were not. Jesus is in a house that's somewhat similar to this. It's probably a one-story room that they're in, right? Because they tear a hole in the roof and then they drop them through. If you are the homeowner, you're very concerned. You're having a large party in your house, and you're like, don't break anything, don't steal anything, right? That's what you're thinking, maybe. That's what I would be thinking. I'm kind of particular sometimes. And then all of a sudden, like, you start hearing a noise. Imagine hearing a noise in the room that we're in right now. Like, and then Jesus keeps teaching for a while, and then you hear more. And there's dust and dirt falling on people's heads. Can you imagine this? Everyone's like, get out. Like, people are probably trying to back up and move because they're like, what is going on? And then they can't move because they're stuck in the house, right? There's other people around them. The dust and the dirt fall down. And then you look up and you see a hole. <laughs> and they lower this man down. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we all need friends like this. Do you have friends that are willing to destroy someone else's house to get you healed? Are they willing to dig a hole through somebody else's roof to help you see Jesus? These friends are pretty committed, aren't they? 
How many of you have got friends like that? I mean, you have, you have friends sometimes that will help you move, and then you have friends that will help you move a dead body. Those are different friends, right? Maybe you help them move a dead body. So, you know. Don't move dead bodies, okay? Don't take that seriously, guys. <laughs> you have friends that are willing to do this. And, and Jesus sees this. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't get upset. What does he see in this action? What does it say that he sees? Their what? Faith. He sees their faith. See, sometimes I think we think of faith as something that we have a belief. And that's true. Hopefully you all have faith in Jesus Christ. But if your faith doesn't draw you to action, you may never receive the fruit of your faith here and now. What, what do I mean? How, how many of you have bulbs at home, flowers, maybe tomato plants that are not in the ground yet? Anyone? This last week, I finally got my stuff in, in the ground. Like I, I, I got everything mostly in the ground. So we can grow, right? If I leave it out, I still have it, but it doesn't what? It doesn't grow. It doesn't become what its intent is. If I keep it in the little pot, if I don't do anything with it, it will die, it will shrivel up. It'll never produce fruit. Faith is good to have. It is better to exercise it. It is better to use it. See, often we have faith, but we have faith in the measure where we're like, well, I believe that God can do this. But we never step out, as Kim would say, of our boats to actually test the waters to see if he'll do it. We never put ourselves in a position where God has to show up. These men digging a hole through a roof had faith enough to carry their friend up there and to do what others would not do in order to get him to receive healing. Do you have faith enough to walk it out? Do you have faith enough to do what God is asking you to do? How many of you get caught by fear sometimes? Yeah. So you can have faith, and, and then you also have fear. And fear will tell you not to walk out your faith. Fear will tell you not to dig the hole through the roof. Fear will tell you not to try to do this because maybe it'll fail. Maybe it won't work. Maybe this or that. You need to sometimes do what God has given you, he's given you a measure of faith. You need to start walking it out and doing what he's asking you to do. So they dig through this roof, and Jesus does not heal him. Instead, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. This is problematic. This is a problem. It's, it's a problem for the man who's paralyzed, because he probably wasn't expecting that. His friends were probably expecting him to be healed. But instead, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. The problem is, only God can forgive. Only the divine can set free those of sin. Now, the, the Jewish people had a way to receive forgiveness. They had a way to do that, but it required blood. It required sacrifice. You would take your lamb, you would take your dove, you would take your 
grain and you would offer sacrifices. You would give up something in order to show that you were truly repentant. Now, when, when I teach my kids to ask uh, for forgiveness, sometimes when they do something kind of beyond what they should have, I'll, I'll say, you need to say you're sorry and then ask, how can I make it right? Have you ever done that with your kids? Yeah. How can I make it right? It goes beyond just saying, well, I, I'm sorry. And this is kind of how they would have to live. Every time they remembered that they did something wrong, they would have to offer some form of sacrifice. They would have to pay for their sin. And instead of following that, Jesus kind of shuts it down in that moment, and he says, your sins are forgiven. You can't do that, Jesus. You can't do that until he does the right thing in the temple. You can't do that until he does and fulfills the law of Moses. You're not allowed to do that. That's what some people think in this. Verse 6 is, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So they're not saying it out loud, okay? Why does this man speak like that? This is verse 6. He is what? Blasphemy. What does that mean? It means he's misusing the word of God. He is taking uh, God's role. He is putting himself in the position of God. And we know that this is what they mean by this, because they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone. And you may say, well, we have a lot of people that claim to be God. There are people out there. You can find cults, I'm sure, today if you really want to go join a cult where the man believes that he is Jesus Christ. He is reincarnate Christ. They believe that they're gods. They believe this type of stuff. But within the Jewish world, if you did something like this, if you said something like this, you could be killed. You could be drug out and stoned. Large boulders thrown at you. You die. Jesus says this. Who can forgive? This is what they say to Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus has said, your sins are forgiven. So the question is, who are these scribes? Are they spies? Who are they? What are scribes? That was one of the questions I had when I was looking at this. Scribes were men who learned and understood the law. And it's important for us to realize when we read about the law, we have to understand that it is both a social and a religious function. We have the law today. If you drive out of here and you go too fast into Cicero, you're going to get pulled over most likely because there's usually like three or four police officers right there, right? That's just a warning for all of you. If you do something wrong, you will be found out, possibly. If you break the law, you could end up in where? You could end up in jail. So you have our state law, you have government law. The, the Jewish people had God's law that applied in both areas. So it wasn't just one area. It wouldn't just be like, oh, you have church rules, and then you have national rules. No, the national law was God's law. Now, they were occupied by Roman soldiers, so they had that law, too, that they had to worry about, but they were supposed to follow God's word as if it was law. So scribes, in some ways, are almost like 
lawyers of the day. They understood the law. They studied the law. They were learned men. And they also applied the law. They were able to make judgments and calls. And they were also associated with the Pharisees. And we'll talk about who the Pharisees are at some other point because they start becoming an issue for Jesus. But the scribes were the ones that made sure that you did everything right. You participated in the Sabbath the correct way. You washed your hands the right way. You didn't steal from your neighbor. You didn't do anything wrong. And then they also were in charge of writing down the word of God. So they would make copies because you couldn't Xerox or copy things with machine. You'd have to write it out by hand, word by word. So they were in charge of caring for the word of God, literally, and then also applying it and helping others to keep the law. There was at least one in every town because we had to make sure every town was okay, right? How many of you are like, I think my neighbor's a scribe. I got a letter from the HOA. Pretty sure they're, yeah, there are people like that. They're rule followers, right? And they want others to follow the rule. This was literally their job. This is what they were supposed to do. Often friends of, of Pharisees. Not every Pharisee was a scribe, but most scribes were Pharisees. Keepers of the law. So they would, they would stop in on rabbis. And rabbi, rabbis were teachers of Scripture. Scribes were not necessarily teachers of Scripture. They were ones that made sure you did it. They were like the police of that day. And then the, they would make sure that the rabbis were teaching correctly. Because if the rabbis were teaching incorrectly... They would lose their rabbihood. They would lose their people. They could be exiled. They could be killed. All of these things could happen to them. So every town had a scribe. But in this scripture, you see multiple scribes. And Capernaum probably did not have too many of them. But there were probably a few there. And it seems that they had come in from the surrounding area to see what Jesus was doing. They're there to make sure he's doing it the right way. They're there to make sure that Jesus is kosher. That he's doing everything correctly. And so they think they've caught him. They think that this is an issue. They're like, he can't do this. Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. This is blasphemy. And this is where their thoughts would have gone immediately. But verse 8 tells us what Jesus does. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, what does he say? Why do you question these things in your hearts? I love it. He calls out their thoughts, doesn't he? So not only has he said, hey, your sins are forgiven. He turns around and says, you guys, you guys are thinking so loud. Here's what I hear. Here, I hear you. I know what you're saying. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven... Or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Which one's easier, he says. To me, I think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but it's probably harder to make that really happen, right? Verse 10. But that you may know. Everyone say that. But that you may know. I love that. He's like, all right. <laughs> I'm going to prove to you who I am. I shouldn't be able to say your sins are forgiven unless I can do this. But so that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go, go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. This shows that Jesus has not only the authority to heal bodies, but to cleanse souls. He has the ability to forgive sins. He has the ability. And, and I love, this is, it's such a surprising way of teaching. Because he does the opposite of what they're expecting. They're expecting the miracle first. They're expecting the miracle but instead, he approaches it and starts to show them who he is. He not only shows them who he is, he says who he is. He says he's the son. He says he is God's son in this, the son of man. So here we go. We see that Jesus is doing exactly and only what he can do. And everyone realizes this. So the question that you have, I, I want to show you a picture real quick of, of what they Scribes most likely looked like. I found some not actual photos. But, but later on, uh, Jesus talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, and he, he, he calls them out eventually. He starts picking fights with them because they show up to pick fights with him. And he starts labeling the issues that they have because... The, the scribes created some of their own problems because while they were trying to apply the law, they would also expand it. How many of you have been so nervous when you're driving your car that you're going the speed limit, you see a police officer behind you, you drop five more miles an hour? Yeah. So, so instead of just doing that, you know, just abiding by the law, they're like, hey, well, you know what we should probably do? People are still uh, committing sin. They're still breaking God's law. What we should do is we know God says not to do this. But what we should do is say that all of this is wrong, too. Because if all of this is wrong for them to do, then they won't ever get here. So they'll stay out here and not do this. They start creating fences and boundaries beyond the boundaries and fences that God has. They create laws to protect the law. And it seems like a brilliant idea, but if you've ever been around somebody who's very critical and likes to tell you what to do, you know that when you start giving in to them, they just create more and more rules. And they manage heavily. And it gets to be too much. And you can't keep up with all this. And this is what's happening to the people. So Jesus starts ad addressing this eventually. He starts questioning them. He starts asking them uh, questions that are, are, are ways of showing them how they're wrong. But he also proves who he is through all of this. The next verse, we see that he goes out again. Because we see Mark is, is laying out a story for us. It isn't just about the healing. It isn't just about 
the forgiveness of sins. It's also about something that's happening within these towns and these areas. You have Jesus who's calling the disciples to follow him. People are starting to follow him. And then you have an outside crowd that's watching it, and they're not sure. They have questions. You have an outside crowd that's also watching it, and they're pretty sure that this guy's wrong. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea. This is Jesus. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. This is way bigger of a deal than we think. Because we say, well, Jesus called fishermen before. Right, that's, that's one thing. But when Jesus calls somebody who is a tax collector, that's a completely different problem. Tax collectors like Levi, also known as Matthew, remember a lot of times they have more than one name. Levi is a tax collector, which means that he left the Jewish people to some degree. He abandoned them. While he's still a Jew, he is no longer seen by his brothers and sisters, even maybe his, his extended family members as somebody who's doing the right thing. He is a tax collector. How many of you love tax collectors? I was in Dollar General uh, last week, and an older gentleman, I use the word gentleman loosely, was at the counter, and he had a large bag of paper towel rolls. He put it up there, plopped it down, and the cashier rang it up, and she said, it's 5.35. No, it's not, he said. Yes, it is. She scanned it again, showed him. It said $5. She said, I'm sorry, but there are taxes. And he said, no, it says $5. She says, no, there are taxes. Like, taxes shouldn't be that much. I'm like, like this lady's in charge of taxes in the state of Indiana? She's not. She's working at Dollar General in Cicero. And she was very patient. She said, well, I don't know what to tell you, but it isn't $5. It's $5.35. Well, fine. Just take it. I don't want it anyways. And he stormed out. So I came up next, and I said, I'd like to argue with you about taxes. She just looked at me and said, I'm kidding. And she goes, well, that's like the second or third time he's done that. I'm like, why does he keep coming in? Why does he keep coming in? Nobody really likes taxes. But it is worse back then. It's way worse. Because you have people collecting tax like Levi, and, and he was probably a tax collector for sales and things like that. So he is that person, but you would have a whole separate person collecting the taxes. He's not working for the community, though. It's not going back into the school system. It's going to Rome. So he's collecting taxes for the enemy. If somebody became a tax collector against their own people, they'd be ostracized. They were worse than, than anybody. That's about the worst thing you do. You'd like a thief better than a tax collector because tax collectors say it's legal. And not only that, tax collectors were allowed by the Romans very often to collect way more than they were supposed to collect. And you know what they would do with the top of that cream and that share? 
They were wealthy. But how did they get rich? They got rich off of their brothers and sisters. They got rich off of the community they grew up in. They were traitors. So Jesus calls this man to come and follow him. He calls the enemy to come follow him. I don't know about you, but if I had been paying taxes to a country and nation I did not like and uh, a government that was oppressive and, and hurting my people, I'd be very upset with the people that were traitors. I would see them as spies. I would see them as bad people. And that's often how it is because you can see this. So verse 15, it seems that Jesus not only is with Levi, he's reclining at a table in his house. So not only does Jesus say, come follow me, he goes into the man's house and it says many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Who hangs out with the tax collector? Other tax collectors. If you have no friends because of your job, you only hang out with other people that are like you. And so that's exactly what's going on. Levi is eating with the people that would eat with him, and those are other tax collectors and other sinners. They were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with what? Sinners and? I'm telling you, the tax collectors are worse than sinners, just so you know. Said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who you eat with says who you are to a certain degree, doesn't it? That's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, you only eat with your friends. You only eat with people that are kind of within your same running style. You only eat with people that are like you. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Rabbis aren't supposed to do that. The scribes said when they saw this, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? They asked that to his disciples. They come up and they say, hey, um, why is he eating with them? This is ridiculous. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i came not to call the righteous but sinners i came not to call the righteous but sinners jesus tells the scribes this isn't for you now why does he do that they think they're right already how many of you know the scribes are probably sinners? Do you think the scribes got it right all the time? Do you think they didn't ever purposefully break their own rules? You don't think they ever did anything wrong? You know, they hid it better than everyone else. You know, they, they were able to, to stop uh, showing it to others. You know, they, they put on the right clothes and they dressed the right way and they followed all the right rules in front of other people. But you know they weren't always right, but they think that they're right. They think that what they're doing is earning their salvation. They think that what they're doing is earning their place into heaven. And Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, the people who have made themselves right, but I've come to call the sinners, the prostitutes, the drunks, the tax collectors, the rebels, the people who are very good at doing the wrong thing. This is who Jesus is eating with. And he says it this way. I am calling them because a doctor doesn't visit the healthy 
He visits the sick. He visits the sick. The truth is, though, the truth is, these scribes need Jesus as much as the sinners need Jesus. You with me? These people need Jesus just as much because we know that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we all mess up. We all make mistakes. They just don't see it that way. Have you ever tried to teach somebody something when they didn't want to learn it? It, it isn't useful. It isn't helpful. It doesn't work. And so what Jesus says is, I came for people like this. And when I read this, this is great news for me. Because I know I mess up. This is great news for you. Because I'm pretty sure you mess up too. <laughs> Any of you sinned? Have any of you messed up? Jesus came for you. Now, if any of you in this church are perfect, God bless you. Leave now. You're good. If you're around us, you're probably going to get messed up by us. It's good that you're so perfect and you don't need Jesus. <laughs> this is, hey, we still have this issue in churches. We still have this issue, and maybe we haven't done the best job of explaining this because we have a world that thinks that we're uppity. We have a world that thinks that we, we come in, pretend that we're perfect. Like we, we don't ever have problems, and we don't ever have issues, and we don't ever make mistakes, and we never sin. We, we have a world that thinks that we're trying to uh, force them into perfection when in reality we're kind of limping in here most Sundays and we feel like we haven't got it all together and we know that we need Jesus. The reason we gather together and read from his word isn't because we're perfect or we're trying to stay perfect. The reason we do that is because we need Jesus desperately. We need healing desperately. We need salvation desperately. And I'm not just talking about entering into the kingdom of heaven in eternity one day. We need salvation for today. We need forgiveness today. We need repentance today. We need to realize that when we look down, we see wounds and sins and scars on our body. And we need to step into Jesus' presence so that he can heal us from that because he is the great physician. He's the great doctor. And he came for people in their weakness. The first step to getting help is admitting that you have a problem. Here's the problem we have. We are all sinners until we come to Jesus. And he sets us free from that. I don't walk around saying I'm a sinner. I don't walk around saying that. No, I, I walk around saying, I'm set free through the power of Jesus Christ. He came for me while I was a sinner. And then now the Holy Spirit resides within me. Does that mean I'm perfect? No. It means I realize the need for Jesus. So Jesus comes for those that need him and understand that they need him. Here's the great thing about sinners. Most of the time they know they're wrong. And if you can get and reach somebody who knows they're wrong, and then on top of that, they realize they have a problem, but they want to fix that problem. They are open to meeting Jesus. 
they're open to it. So he's, he's eating with these people. He's, he's around the wrong people. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees are looking at him. And they're saying, Jesus doesn't pick the right people to hang out with. Matthew 18, 17. This is interesting. Because this is words from Jesus. He's talking about tax collectors in this. And he's telling them, hey, if you have a problem with somebody in the church, if you have an issue within the church, if there's a fight, if there's an argument going on, if somebody's harmed you or they sinned against you, you go and talk to them. And if you can't resolve it there, you go and talk to them with an elder or another brother or sister in Christ. And if you can't resolve it there and they refuse to listen, excuse me, and they're in sin, then here's what you do. Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, the whole congregation, let him be as to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means you disassociate. So Jesus himself was using the illustration of how you treat tax collectors to show you that this is what's supposed to happen when somebody walks away from God. But Jesus himself calls the Gentiles and the tax collectors, doesn't he? How many of you are thankful that Jesus comes for sinners? I am. This is why I, I never understand churches that don't want people that are, that are having a difficult time in their life in their church. I, I never understood that. Because Jesus has called us to exactly those people. Everyone is sick, but some people think they're fine without Jesus. I know that's not true, though. There's several different authors that said this. I, I don't know for sure if, if this quote, if she was the original person to say this, but I've heard it quoted several times. You can show that quote, Aiden, if you can. It says, the church is a hospital for what? Sinners not a museum for saints. This is the problem that we have sometimes within the church is, is we want to create those boundaries outside of the boundaries, outside of the boundaries, so that we never mess up. And we want to create this image that presents itself as knowing everything and having it all right, instead of saying, we need Jesus. Just as much as those disciples and those tax collectors and those sinners need Jesus, we still need Jesus. And I, I told you before, you know, we were looking at the first few weeks into it, we said that all are called to Jesus. Jesus is still calling you. Amen? You all need the cross. You all need the risen Savior. We all need to be healed. We all need to be made well in our souls and in our hearts. We all need Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you came for people like me. People that, that were messed up. People that didn't have perfection. People that are just normal. Because we know we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And those scribes and those Pharisees, they messed up too. They just didn't want to admit it. They needed Jesus just as much as, as those sinners, quote unquote, and those tax collectors needed Jesus. 
We all need Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you have called us, that you have set us free when we receive salvation from the bondage of sin and death. But we also realize that you're still calling others. Lord, I pray our church would be a place that doesn't label people. We don't judge people. Instead, we invite them into relationship with Jesus. We say, hey, here's Jesus. Here's a guy you need to meet. Here's the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's somebody who can heal you. Here's somebody who can set you free. And when they come in struggling, instead of condemnation and judgment and oppression, they feel love and acceptance because we all realize we have been there before. And but for the grace of God go I. Lord, I thank you that that's the call of the church. That the church is called to be a hospital for the sick a place for the needy. Lord, I pray that we would not get prideful, that we would not be like the scribes and the Pharisees, but instead we would be like Jesus, calling the people who need him the most, reaching them, inviting them to eat with us, sitting at our literal tables in our dining rooms, at our picnic tables outside, inviting them to restaurants, eating with them in public. Lord, I pray when we see somebody in need and somebody who's hurting and somebody who doesn't have their life straightened out, instead of judging them, we would go to them and say, hey, let's have a meal. We would see how we can minister to them. Lord, I pray that we would be a church full of people who live and act like Jesus Christ because we know that that's what we need from others. Help us to accept others where they are so that they can believe in Jesus and care for each other. In Jesus' name we pray.